got the, uh, the course description that I was checking and thinking, what material shall I bring and so on. I noticed that now uh, there are several Bible passages uh, assigned to the course and sort of integrated into what we're doing. And I thought, ah, well, that's interesting because in the last couple of years, uh, I have moved into uh, the preaching program at my church. And I've been thinking uh, a lot more, therefore, about preaching and what is preaching, what role does that play in worship and church liturgy and, and so on. How do I think about it? How do I do it well? Someone called to do that within our church. And I've written on a number of the passages that were in the, the course description. So uh, you should hopefully have or be being sent uh, a PDF with all of the sermons that I've written that are on passages that are in the course. Uh, but one of which is Acts 1, 1 to 11 here. Uh, so I'll give you this as, one, as a handout for today. But I thought I would bring you and talk a little bit about sermonising and bring you what is not, because a sermon is not an academic lecture. Uh, it's not a, a sort of, let's learn about the history of the first century, although you might want to mention that, or... Um, you know, let's try and impress the audience with how well read we are or whatever. Um, you know, you do uh, different things when you're doing academic talks and this is not an academic talk, this is a, a, a sermon. But what is a sermon? I wanted to, to link that in by thinking about um, way of life or what in, in English, and I believe it doesn't translate across very well, talk about spirituality, but you may remember from the study tour when I was talking about uh, Christian theism and modernism and postmodernism, and looking at that in the context of spirituality or way of life, just to remind you of this little structure diagram of thinking about spirituality as your uh, assumptions and belief in your thinking, your uh, the attitudes of your heart, your not just your, your feelings, but your attitudes towards things, your commitments that you make with your heart, leading to your actions. And so this sort of combination of assumptions and attitude, or head and heart, is, uh, covers basically the same sort of territory that as Sire defines as worldview, uh, and leads to action. And we were looking during the study tour at how uh, some of those actions are the actions that create culture and that culture therefore reflects people's spirituality reflects their worldview and we were looking at you know architecture from Salisbury Cathedral through to sort of postmodern architecture and, and so on looking at song lyrics and film clips and all sorts of bits of culture but I have this kind of structure in the back of my mind when I'm thinking about um, preaching doing a sermon. Um, there's a passage in, in Paul when he, he says in, in church worship, everything should be done for edification. Uh, everything should be done for, for building up one another into the image of Christ. In other words, everything should be done for your spiritual development. Um, being a Christian is not just a sort of static state, like I am a, I'm a not a Christian, and now I, I am a Christian. I've moved from one box into the, into the next box. Tick. Job done. Um, no, it is rather, 
it is moving from one way of life, one way of being in the world, into a different way of life, uh, a Christ-focused, a Christocentric way of relating to God and myself and my neighbour and the world around me in that new, whole new context. And it's one way moving from what I, what, I, what I am to what God intends me to be. So there's, there's a, a dynamic process involved in, in uh, being a Christian and having a new way of life. Indeed, Christians originally called their religion the way. There's a number of, of, of passages in scripture where they refers to you know, followers of the way. And it was, it was the pagans who coined the term Christian as a, a, as a abuse to hurl at followers of the way. Because Christian literally means something like uh, Christ, Messiah slave. It's like, oh, you, you, know, you, you stupid Messiah slaves. Christian. And then, of course, the Christians adopted that term for themselves, as many minorities will, will adopt the term that, of cultural abuse that people use for them. Um, so I think that's still a, kind of an interesting point. They thought of themselves as entering into a way, a way of following Jesus in the way of life that he had come to, to reveal. So I have that kind of structure in the back of my mind because I'm thinking when I'm reading a scriptural passage, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I've got to preach on this. I'm thinking, well, what is this passage saying that relates to people's heads and their hearts and what they do as a result? What is it claiming about what you should believe and assume about the world in terms of sort of doctrine? What is it claiming about what's true? What is this passage saying about what commitments we should make? What is it claiming about... Uh, what is, is a beautiful way of life or by contrast what is ugly, what is false and so on what does it claim about what, what is the right and the wrong things to do about what is good and what is bad in terms of our behaviour and so on um, and how do I uh, help the congregation that I have, that I know to see those things, to be moved by them to engage with them in, in our modern context. Um, so, you know, you can't just, I mean, Paul, uh, later on in Acts, in Acts 17, when he's engaging with the philosophers in Athens, when you read about the background of those different philosophical schools, and comp you have that background to reading what he says in Acts 17, you can see he's very cleverly playing off these different rival philosophical schools against each other and saying, I, I partially agree with you. Yes, he agrees with us, you stupid Stoics. See, Paul, he's on our side, ha, ha, ha. And then he says, but, <laughs> you know, these guys have a point. It's like, oh, no, no, no. And he's getting them and he's saying, but you're all wrong. <laughs> you know, you've all got a point, but let me tell you, that I've got more of a point, and it's Jesus, you know. <laughs> That's basically where, where he comes from. So he, he really knows their culture, and he communicates the gospel in terms of their culture and their questions and their issues. Um, but it's no use me doing that today in 21st century Southampton, because I have very few Stoics or pantheists 
or uh, in my congregation or that might be dropping in uh, with a Christian friend and over listening. But I will have people who've read Richard Dawkins or have just seen a BBC documentary on evolution or, or what have you. So I'm thinking, well, how, does, how is this going to play, as it were, with this audience? What are the barriers that my congregation are going to have to agreeing with what this scriptural passage is claiming about what is true and what is beautiful and what is good? Uh, what might stop them getting excited about engaging in the Christian way of life? So I'm going to sort of deliver to you, as it were, a sermon that I gave on a particular occasion to a particular uh, audience, and, and that'll be clear from some of what I say, but it'll also be a way of me covering this passage. Um, but I want you to feel free to stick a hand up if I'm, if I'm not clear, particularly I know I'm speaking in second language for you, or you want to ask questions about what we're doing as we, as we go through. So don't treat me as you would normally treat uh, the, the preacher standing behind his, you know, his or her lectern uh, delivering a sermon. And you'll, you'll notice even here I, I sort of say at, at one stage, this might raise questions for you. And if you want to come and ask me questions afterwards, as we have coffee at the, at the, at the end of the service, do that. I encourage people to come and sort of engage with me. Because obviously during a, a worship service context, you, you can't just sort of... What about this? <laughs> you know, but here we can. So that's that's great. Don't don't feel awkward about doing that. <coughs> so we take some water. We've had the the passage. Uh, I don't need to read it again in English, do I? Uh, so uh, Theophilus, also mentioned in. Uh, Luke 1.3, has a Greek name. Uh, that Theophilus means lover of God. Theophilos, lover of God. That doesn't suggest that he was a made-up figure. Some people have suggested this occasionally. Indeed, symbolic dedicatees to books were virtually unknown in the ancient world, so it, it's likely that Theophilus was a real person, uh, a person of status, whose name in the dedication of Luke's books might be thought useful to, to circulating the work. It's a bit like uh, a lesser-known author getting their book published and having a foreword written by someone well-known that will grab uh, people's attention. It's like, this will grab the attention of... Uh, Greek readers and Romans that this is the dedicatee of the work. And the title most excellent that's given to Theophilus in Luke 1.3 suggests that he was a high official uh, in the service of Rome. And that position would have given him sufficient wealth to act as Luke's literary patron, paying for the publication of his two-scroll history of Jesus and the early church um, because it is expensive to publish a book particularly in the ancient world where for every copy of that book you want you need to pay someone to copy the book <laughs> by hand uh, laboriously and uh, maybe Luke would have 
used the help of, of scribes in composing it and so on. And maybe he needed uh, funds to go on a research trip to Jerusalem and interview some of those witnesses and, and so on. It's an expensive business. So that's Theophilus. Uh, Luke opens his gospel by recording that since he's carefully investigated everything from the beginning, in the style of a proper classical historian, he decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught, that you've been taught. So it appears that Theophilus was an official of Rome who'd heard about Jesus, but who wanted more evidence. Now, if today's new atheists are to be believed, and they aren't, <laughs> Luke's response to Theophilus at this stage should have been to tell him to just have faith. He should have said, look, Theophilus, just have faith. And to ignore history. After all, according to, say, uh, Christopher Hitchens here, Religion, he says, just is a surrender of reason in favour of faith. It's a great, you know, trench coat, smoking journalist kind of picture of Christopher Hitchens there. Or uh, A.C. Grayling, who's a, a British philosopher and uh, one of the new atheists. Again, says uh, faith, he defines it this way. He says faith is a stance or an attitude of belief independent of, characteristically in the countervailing face of evidence. It is non-rational at best and probably irrational given that it involved deliberate ignoring of evidence or commitment despite a lack of evidence. That's what faith is, according to him. Well, Luke's two-volume response to Theophilus demonstrates that far from requiring commitment despite a lack of evidence, Christian faith can be, it doesn't have to be, but it can be, a commitment because of evidence. Luke doesn't encourage Theophilus to ignore the evidence and just have faith. Far from it. He provides Theophilus with further evidence handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, as he says at the beginning of Luke. Now it is all too easy to assume that first century folk, so long ago, must have been easily duped or deluded into thinking that Jesus worked miracles and, and rose from the dead and so on, uh, to accept another word, uh, atheist Walter Sinnott Armstrong's opinion that most people at the time were gullible. So that's why these stories about Jesus working miracles and everything, people were just gullible back then, weren't they? In, in the olden days. However, historian Robert Grant reports that in the, uh, the late Hellenistic era was the, uh, the least credulous period of antiquity. He calls it the least credulous period of antiquity. Graham Stanton, is a New Testament scholar, observes that Greco-Roman writers were often reluctant 
to ascribe miraculous events to the gods. And they offered alternative explanations, just like today's new atheists might do. Some writers, he says, were openly sceptical about miracles, writers like famous names like Epicurus and Lucretius and Lucian and so on. And indeed, in particular, when it comes to the notion of resurrection from the dead, the Greco-Roman world of the first century was not an age of gullibility. Rather, it was an age of cynicism and scepticism. The dominant school of Greek thought, which was Stoicism at the time, rejected any idea of life beyond death. So did one of the two major Jewish schools of thought, of course. The Sadducees rejected the notion of resurrection. There was no shortage of eloquent and learned voices ready to battle with any religion that proposed as its central belief the idea that a person came back from the dead. Whether you were Jewish or Greco-Roman. Now, Luke reports that when Paul was at the, the Areopagus Council in Athens, this is in Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul told them that Jesus had been appointed judge of humanity by God and had given proof of this by raising him from the dead. When Paul said this, they didn't just take him at his word because they were gullible first century people. So when they heard about resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule him, says Luke. Little wonder, according to the Greek writer Aeschylus, at the founding of the Areopagus Council, the god Apollo had pronounced this. He said, when the dust has soaked up a person's blood, once he is dead, there is no resurrection. So that was kind of like in the founding documents of the council that Paul was talking to about Jesus being raised from the dead, was the rejection of the idea that anyone could come back from the dead. Despite this context, several Athenians became Christians, including Dionysius the Areopagite, so a member of the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So quite a successful missionary tour. Paul, in other words, must have had some good arguments for this culturally outrageous claim about Jesus' resurrection uh, to convince such a sceptical audience. I mean, read the Gospel accounts of how the disciples deal with Jesus' execution and the discovery of his empty tomb and the first reports from the women whom they dismiss. Oh, babbling women, you can't trust what they say. There was a first I'm diverting it. There was a first century uh, uh, Greek critic of, of Christianity called Celsus, who's quoted in later uh, Church Fathers' writings. And Cel one of Celsus's criticisms of belief in the resurrection is you can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus because the first reports come from some hysterical woman, he says. Yeah. And that was basically the male disciples' attitude at the time. So, do the disciples seem gullible? By no means. 
With the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples saw their messianic dreams come crashing and, and burning to the ground. They concluded that Jesus must be a failed messiah, and there were quite a few around at the time. He must be a blasphemer, hung upon a tree under the curse of God. Have a look at Deuteronomy 21-23. That would be their conclusion about Jesus. It took their experiences of encountering a resurrected Jesus to overturn this conclusion and to establish Jesus in their minds as, well, so much more than just a messiah. As the New Testament scholar Jonathan Kendall uh, reports, that numerous individuals, including Jesus' closest disciples, had experiences subsequent to the crucifixion that led them to conclude that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead is a fact accepted by essentially all New Testament scholars, even those who are most sceptical of Christianity and the resurrection itself. So that includes atheist New Testament scholars, Jewish, non-Messianic Jewish New Testament scholars, and so on. What you make of that fact, <laughs> what you make of the abundant evidence for the resurrection, and indeed what you make of the ascension of Jesus, will mainly depend upon the, the assumptions and attitudes that you bring with you to the investigation of that evidence. Luke doesn't speak in terms of literal proof, as my English translation has, not in the logical or mathematical sense, but he does write that Jesus gave convincing evidence that he was alive, Acts 1.3. This proof, this convincing evidence, was, was pragmatically beyond reasonable doubt to the original eyewitnesses. And if you've got questions on these key issues, I'd be like, delighted to talk with you over coffee at the close of the service. <laughs> Just when the disciples had got their heads around Jesus' resurrection, they had to get their heads around his ascension. The, the ascension is that event where Jesus miraculously signified to the disciples that he would no longer meet with them physically. He'd been meeting with them for over a period of about 40 days, Luke says. This event is narrated twice by Luke, uh, in Luke 24, 50-53, and in Acts 1, 9-10. But it's also mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament. It is mentioned elsewhere, for example, John 20, 17, or 1 Timothy 3, 16. So it's an event that passes the historical sort of criteria of historical research known as of having multiple independent witnesses to something, multiple attestation. Well, an atheist friend of mine, actually the atheist friend that I'm writing this resurrection debate book with, uh, once asked me, and I quote, and he says, am I expected to believe that Jesus' disciples saw him floating like a red balloon up, 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 and finally disappearing. He is a former English uh, literature professor, so he has a very nice turn of phrase. So it's a good way of, of putting 
the sceptical viewpoint, isn't it? Making it seem as it like believing some sort of childhood fantasy. Well, here's the question. Why not? That Jesus is obscured by a cloud and vanishes recalls the presence of God manifested as a cloud at the transfiguration of Jesus reported in Luke 9. While Jesus was talking with Moses and Elijah, quote, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I've chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Well, this time when the cloud disappeared, the disciples found that they were alone. Philosopher Stephen T. Davis makes this comment on the event. He says, although I accept Luke's account of the ascension of Jesus as trustworthy, I see the event primarily as a symbolic act performed for the sake of the disciples. By means of it, God showed them that Jesus was henceforth to be apart from them in space and time. The ascension of Jesus was visibly symbolised for the disciples by a change of location. It says it, it, it's not as if you have to think, well, you know, Jesus was down here on earth and he needs to go back to heaven. So he sort of takes off like a rocket or a balloon or whatever. <laughs> he goes through the clouds and then he's going through the stratosphere and then he goes through, you know, the, the, uh, the Aristotelian uh, circles of the heavens and finally he gets to the, the, the seventh heaven and there he is uh, with God uh, sort of uh, so many thousands of miles away. Oh, no. no, this is, Jesus really did sort of lift up and get covered by a cloud, maybe you could say, but that was a symbolic way of saying, I'm returning to the glory of God, which is what clouds signify in Jewish thought. And this is it, guys, bye, you know, and, but he doesn't just keep going. <laughs> so, no sooner had the disciples come to terms with Jesus' ascension. They had to come to terms with the fact that Jesus had left them with a mission and a divine source of power for that mission, the Holy Spirit. And on the one hand, confusingly for them, that, that mission was not to, quote, restore the kingdom to Israel. That's what Jewish messianic hopes at the time, under the pressure of, of Roman occupation, focused on. In other words, their job doesn't involve kicking Roman butt. Uh, I was rather pleased to work uh, the, word, the phrase kicking Roman butt into a, into a sermon. Yeah. <laughs> on the other hand, although they knew that Jesus will return one day, they're not just to kick back and wait for God to put the world to rights without them. It's not just... Let go and let God, hey, we're saved, whoopee, and let's just wait for God to return and put everything in order. And he'll do the kicking of Roman butt for us. You know, it's, it's not focused on that. So they haven't just been assigned to God's cheerleading squad. This is not the task. They're not standing on the sidelines of history here. Rather, with the backing of the Holy Spirit, their mission is to, well, let's put it this way, to expand the kingdom of God by bearing witness to Jesus. 
to expand the kingdom of God by bearing witness to Jesus in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This mission is the continuation of all that Jesus began to do and teach, Acts 1.1. Jesus continues to act and to teach, but now he does so through human witnesses empowered by the Holy Spirit. To bear witness to Jesus is the calling of all Christians. And you can look at passages like 2 Corinthians 5.20 or 1 Peter 3.15. And it is a daunting prospect, isn't it? It's no coincidence that the the whole book of Acts functions as a kind of how-to guide to expanding the kingdom of God by bearing witness to Jesus. You know, you know those books that you will get a series, I know the English titles are things like, you know, uh, Microsoft Word for Dummies, uh, Philosophy for Dummies, you can even get, uh, there's a good American version by Thomas V. Morris. Um, well, Acts is like expanding the kingdom of God for dummies. That's, that's sort of its task. The Christian philosopher Thomas V. Morris, who I coincidentally just mentioned, recommends five steps for building courage. This is sort of um, philosophical self-help. Yeah. <laughs> five steps for building courage. He says, one, prepare for the challenge. Prepare. Two, get support. Three, use what he calls positive self-talk. Um, build up your self-image in the context. Four, remind yourself what's at stake, why this matters. And five, then take action. Isn't it interesting that Luke shows Jesus encouraging his disciples to take all five of these steps? First, Jesus gave his disciples experiences and information to prepare them for mission. Uh, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Acts 1, 2-4. Now we too, obviously we too, can deliberately gain experience and knowledge that prepares us to share the gospel of the kingdom with people. Uh, A really good first step in that direction would be to read, say, Peter May's little book, The Search for God and the Path to Persuasion. Uh, Peter May is a fellow congregant at my church, and this is a book he published uh, a year, last uh, two years ago. Uh, as a couple, or as a small group, church Bible study group, you could easily read a few chapters a week and then discuss the material together over the course of a term. It would be a good sort of course study book like that for a small group. Second, as well as having each other in fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, such as Joel 2.28, Jesus gave the disciples support for their mission. Wait 
for the gift my father has promised, passage you picked out. Wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. And we too can ask God to inspire, uh, to embolden, to equip us through his spirit as we seek to expand his kingdom. You know that the, the, the roots of the, the English word inspire, inspiration, uh, come from the uh, in-breathing. Uh, it's what it literally means, the in-breathing of the Spirit. So the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's like the, the breathing in of the Holy Spirit. And, and think of passages like uh, the creation of humanity in Genesis, where the, God breathes the breath of life into humanity. Uh, or the, the inspiration of scripture we talk about from the Holy Spirit. Uh, all scripture is God-breathed, and that's where that comes from. But I divert again. Uh, third, positive self-talk. Jesus gave the disciples a positive self-description that's rooted in their relationship with him. This is about their, their new identity as Christians as followers of Christ. He says, you will be my witnesses. And that, there's a difference between thinking of yourself as someone, I, I've just got to give witness to people about Jesus. And actually thinking of yourself, I am Jesus's witness. You see the difference? You will be my witnesses, 1.8. We too need to adopt the right self-image to realise with Paul on the same theme. Paul says, we are therefore ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I've got a picture of the United Nations up here. You send your, every country sends its ambassador to the United Nations. We are Christ's ambassadors to the nations, says Paul. Fourth, reminding ourselves what's at stake. Jesus reminded his disciples what was at stake in their mission, the expansion of God's kingdom on earth. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Today, this mission falls upon our shoulders as both our duty and our joy. There's a phrase in the, in the Church of England liturgy that talks about to worship God is both our duty and our joy, which I'm picking up on there. For the kingdom of God is a thing of beauty. It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. From Jesus' parable of the mustard it's a thing of beauty that's growing. Finally, through his angels, at the end of this passage here, Jesus calls upon the disciples to take action in this context. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? It's actually a bit comedic, this event, if you think about it. You know, Jesus is just oh, taken up into the glory of God. They, and then these two guys sort of wonder why, hey, hey guys, what are you looking at? <laughs> Get on with it. 
uh, Highfield Church, my church, puts on a variety of events and courses to support your mission as ambassadors uh, for Christ. For example, why not be encouraged to invite someone along to next Sunday's Highfield Lecture by the Christian Professor of Psychiatry, Glenn Harrison. Pray about it. Show them a flyer. The flyer on the left. And say, my church is having this Christian psychologist doing a talk next Sunday. What about coming along? Worst case scenario, they say, mm, no thanks. And you'll have broken the ice about being a Christian in a nice way that grows your experience as a faithful ambassador. They're probably not going to deck you one just for inviting them to an event. And if they do, well, you can praise Jesus for being abused in his name anyway. <laughs> On the other hand, they might come along. <laughs> Apologist Greg Kukul, do you know Greg Kukul's works? Um, Greg Kukul, um, look him up on YouTube. He says this, an effective ambassador has three essential skills. First, an ambassador must have some basic knowledge of the character and mind and purposes of his king. Secondly, this knowledge must be deployed in a skillful way. There's an element of wisdom, a tactful and artful diplomacy that makes his message persuasive. And finally, there's character. The kindness, the even-handedness and respect the ambassador shows for those who differ can either make or break his message. You might think back to what I uh, have, um, I don't know if I said in the, in the material I did before about um, rhetoric and uh, Aristotle's rhetoric and how that helps uh, thinking about uh, apologetics and evangelism. Uh, we can ourselves move past simply being daunted by the calling to expand God's kingdom by bearing witness to Jesus if we intentionally follow in the footsteps of the first disciples. We can uh, worship Jesus with our heads and our hearts and our hands by developing our knowledge and our wisdom and our character for his sake. It's interesting that the, the first step in evangelism is our own spiritual development. We can remember that the Holy Spirit works in and through us. We're not alone in this and we have each other. That's the church, of course. We can see ourselves as endowed with the authority and dignity of being God's ambassadors. My witnesses, as Jesus says. And we can be caught up in the vision of what it means for the kingdom of God to grow amongst us. Uh, a vision of contributing to the growth of something truly beautiful and good that, in, that inspires us to want to see that, that happen. And in the light of these things, we can all in some way, shape or form take action. Okay. That's the end of the sermon. I've gone slightly slower than I would do and I've allowed myself to uh, digress occasionally. Uh, any, uh, we've got about five minutes before break time. Any questions that, that are percolating to the forefront of your mind as we go through that material? Or 
what, how was that different from the normal kind of sermon that you're used to getting in any way? Do you get that kind of sermon? Um, this was definitely more fact-based. More fact-based, yes. yeah. So I, I, learned, I would have learned more from this sermon than any, any other normal sermon. Because yeah. as I said, I'm, I'm not wanting to give a history lecture, but I, but I am wanting to say, what is this text claiming about what's true? And this text makes lots of historical claims about the context. So, I, you know, I, there would be Bible passages where I wouldn't talk much about history. But this one demands it, really, because that's what it's about. Um, yeah.